Can you recommend any good commentaries? Commentaries. Talk about commentaries for a second. Yeah, yeah really good commentaries. Uh, there's some good starter commentaries. The Believer's Bible Commentary is a good kind of starter commentary that focuses. It's very, very readable. Um, and then the Bible Knowledge Commentary begins to get you into a bit more of the interpretation. That one's edited by D.A. Carson. Um, but if you want free, good commentary help, and especially if you're studying one verse at a time, I think BibleHub.com is the easiest resource. You go to BibleHub.com, it only focuses on one verse at a time, and then its software pulls up uh, the, the verse in original languages, gives you cross-references for it, and then it pulls up all the commentaries they have available for free um, to that passage in the commentary. So it's all on one page for you. Uh, that's a good place to get some free ones. That'll have Ellicott, Barnes, and a, and a few other people on it, Matthew Henry. and Yeah, another a resource. A lot of you probably familiar with blueletterbible.org. If you haven't been, so along with Bible Gateway, blueletterbible.org is it's incredible. It's free, uh, and it's got tons of Bible study tools on it. If you learn how to use it, it's, it's great. But it also has David Guzik's commentary. They have a lot of commentaries on there. Uh, but if you, a lot of you I know know about David Guzik. He was our speaker last year actually here at uh, PIAC. Um, but his stuff is all free, every verse in the Bible, and you can read it there. Or you can get print copies of, there are things, things called books actually. They're flat and they're pieces of bound together paper. I'm getting made fun of for saying paper concordance and these guys are like, nobody buys a paper Anyway. But you can get David Guzik's commentary in book form too. So he's great and he'll take you through the whole Bible and solid stuff. Amen. So, yeah. Um, if you've never used commentaries before, it's just basically like accessing. Imagine that all these people went to your church and you could just walk up and ask them questions. And you're like, wait, I know a guy in my church who's an expert about this verse. And you can just sort of go ask him and he can tell you. And that's really what a commentary is it's just a larger church helping each other understand scripture. So, yeah. Uh, good question. That was a quick answer, man. Uh, what do you recommend for people who don't usually journal to do instead? What are some other ways they can, in quotes, journal? The HEAR journal method. The here, who did the HEAR journal method this morning? All right. A few Christians. Who did praying through the scriptures this morning? All right. And then where are all the pagans at? Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Completely ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but you got your coffee. Um, I like the HEAR journaling method as a starting journaling method. Other ways I journal are like creating mini, mini sermons. So I focus on a verse, really think about it, and I'll actually put a, a title, intro, and, and write a little sermon out um, with an application and a prayer. Um, those are the two simplest ways to journal. But even if you just get started by underlining the verses and writing, say, I'm just going to write one paragraph or two sentences a day on why I appreciated this verse or what the Lord is speaking to me in this verse, just doing that will be so much better than simply reading the scriptures. Something about having a pen in your hand that gives you a heart of expectancy. I expect the Lord to speak, and so I'm going to write it down. This is going to be a moment where when God speaks, I'm going to care so much because it's the Holy Spirit that I'm going to write it down. I think it's a way to show reverence to the Lord too. So, I think our culture has bred into us these ideas like you hear people say, I'm just not, I don't like to read or I'm not a good reader. That's unfortunate if you're a Christian because God put his revelation in a book. So you don't actually have an option, which means that God made everyone with the ability to be as good a reader as they need to be to hear God's voice in the scripture, which means a pretty darn good reader. Um, so God will help you. That's God's way. And the same thing with journaling and writing. Maybe it's like so not something you would normally do. Uh, but I agree, simply beginning to have a pencil or a pen in your hand and just starting somewhere with, it, it's, it's you. You don't have to journal like someone else. You know, you don't have to try to act like you're a diary keeper or something if you're not. 
but just whatever, however you would do it, it's just another way to get your mind moving. And I like to say the more senses you can engage when you're reading the Bible, actually the more you're going to memorize it. So that's why that's you light a candle when you light a candle. <laughs> Essential oils? No. I don't even believe in those. Anyway, half of you are going to get up and leave right now. Um, how does, this is a cool question. How does, I mean, they're all cool questions, but... <laughs> How does community play into Bible study and quiet time? Community. So we're going to talk about this uh, in the next session, but community helps you from being a heretic, and it, and it kind of removes your pride, because when you talk about the scriptures in community, you have to be teachable, or else nobody wants to talk to you about it anyway. And so in the next section, we'll talk about um, how when you're trying to figure out the meaning of a passage, before you say, okay, I'm done, I figured out the meaning of the passage, talk about it with other people. You know, you don't have to just find a pastor or elder or ministry leader. You can just talk about it with other believers and say, here's how I got to this conclusion. What do you think? And that's very important, especially if you think you're discovering something new. If what you are discovering is not found in the 20 to 50 commentaries that are readily available, you're probably wrong. That's it. You're just wrong. It's not that God waited to give his progressive revelation until you showed up and all the commentators have been wrong since the Reformation. That's just the less likely outcome. And so that's why you know, sharing your interpretation and community, it keeps your heart teachable, which is so important for Bible study. Um, and then you learn, you learn from other people. So that's what I would say. Yeah, sometimes you hear people in church traditions that are based on a central authority with a given authoritative word. They feel like that if you don't, are, if you're not part of that kind of church structure, it just all bets are off and anyone's interpretation is valid. But the truth is, God decided that for 2,000 years there wouldn't be one universally recognized uh, power structure in the church. He set that up. So he's okay with there being all these different uh, congregations all over the world, even different ways of looking at it. And there are ways of checking with the church, starting with your own church and your own community, uh, starting with things that have been written down, starting with, you know, you can read ancient documents. You can read the commentaries of Chrysostom that are, you know, more than 1,500 years old. And you can say... Uh, what was this guy saying about the Bible? And so there are, there are ways of, of sort of crowdsourcing uh, your doctrinal interpretations and looking for what, have the, what has been the central, powerful, most agreed upon you know, interpretations. Because it's not just anything goes. If the Bible says he was crucified and died, and you say, well, I think it means he didn't die and wasn't crucified. Well, there's 2,000 years of church history that's going to go, oh, no, no, it actually does mean that he was crucified and he did die and he did rise again, right? So there's ways to look up these questions. I think that's a good, a good answer. Uh, that was all three of the questions we were going to answer, but I'm going to throw, I like this question. Ready? How does one simultaneously avoid falling into legalism and laziness when it comes to spending time with the Lord? Do you have any thoughts about that? You just do. You just do. No, yeah. So it's a good question, right? So the question comes from a heart, I'm assuming, that is recognizing, man, legalism is terrible, right? To, to, to think that you're better than other people because you do your devotions, to think that God loves you more because you're doing consistent devotions, that's just wrong, right? But it's also so wise. It's wise to do these things. And so how do you find the balance between legalism and laziness? I would say default to the idea that more of us are lazy than legalistic hard workers. Default to the idea, like the R.C. Sproul quote we gave yesterday, that the problem is that Bible study is hard work, and that's why we shy away from it. We like to use the word, you know, freedom in Christ and, and all that to describe 
things that we want to do. I have freedom in Christ to drink. I have freedom in Christ to do this. I have, it's like, well, freedom in Christ is supposed to be so that you can be a slave to, to serve others, right? You can be a bond servant. That's what the freedom was for. And so default to the idea that you're probably lazy. And so don't feel bad about putting disciplines in your life and trying to build healthy habits and having accountability. And it's okay if you have accountability and they're like, you're lazy. Every week you give up. Every week, you, you know, have someone in your life that can help you with those habits. And then you just have, once you have a good healthy habit of being in the word, then I would just say, stay very cautious of making sure it doesn't become a checkbox item on your task list. And you just have to ask yourself gospel-based questions as far as, am I doing this with the right motives? And, and then there'll be days that you skip your devotions, right? And you've, oh, I've had a habit for 60 days and I forgot today. How does your heart handle that? Are you feeling condemned? Well, that's not from the Lord, right? Or are you saying, oh, what a bummer. I'm going to, I'll make it up in the evening, right? Or I can't believe the whole day went through and I didn't do it. That's not my heart. That's not my intention. I'll do it. I'll do it tomorrow, right? So you just have to check your heart, but I would default to saying that we're, we start lazy rather than like we're all. I agree with you. I don't think legalism is the rampant problem in our churches today, especially the, the traditions that most of us sort of come from. Uh, probably laziness is the, is the bigger deal. And, and discipline as a method of spiritual growth is not really something people talk about very often. Most people talk about experiences with God as, as though it's just sort of something that happens to you all the time. You know what I mean? Maybe you go to a worship concert or, or you're at a friend's house and you're having a small group Bible study and you start singing a song and, and spiritual life just sort of happens. It's like, because we use terms like it gets poured out on me. You know, we use this term. So spiritual growth and maturity is just like one day God's just going to fill you. We use that term, right? The filling of the Holy Spirit, then you're going to be mature. But the truth is that, I mean, you read all those quotes last night, and I think basically a lot of the things you've been talking about, just like anything worthwhile in life. You know, we don't talk about, I don't want to be legalistic with my, you know, weightlifting program. No, you know, if you want to lift weights, you need to go several times a week and you need to have a schedule. I don't want to be legalistic with my college, you know. No, if you don't do your stuff regularly, you're going to fail. You know, we don't use that term about any other thing that's worthwhile, right? I don't want to be legalistic with my diet, you know. (laughs) Only spiritual life. But the truth is, that's just part of life. And so all these other ways that we've learned to really see progress in our life apply to spiritual life as well. At least I can only speak from my experience, but developing routines, developing discipline, not, you know, not berating yourself if you miss a day. That's not the point. The point isn't, like you said, condemnation, but no, it really, it really does work. If I apply myself to know the Lord, he will draw near to me, right? That's what it says, right? So, so yeah. if you haven't read a book on spiritual disciplines, um, the book called Spiritual Disciplines by Donald Whitney is fantastic. Try and get a new version, not a cheap version. The new version, he revamped it after 20 years of it being a classic with the focus of making sure nobody could accuse him of being legalistic. So it's like gospel-infused spiritual disciplines. That's my favorite book on spiritual disciplines. And then a lot of people like Habits of Grace as well. Habits of Grace and Spiritual Disciplines. I'm going to tweak this question. Someone wrote in, what are good books of the Bible to study besides John? I'm going to assume that's because they've already studied John. Uh, probably like some people say, well, every you know, book of the Bible is good. But if you had to say, here's like two or three books to start with. If you had to just recommend, if someone's like, well, you know, I could just start reading in Genesis, but what if I wanted to start studying through the way you said? Or maybe you would say Genesis. Like, how would you recommend, like, where to start? Yeah, so they probably said not John because that's the first book everyone recommends to like a new believer. Like, yeah. read, read this first, right? Because it's just a beautiful account of the gospel. So with the assumption that you've heard the gospel by reading a gospel, with that assumption, then I would say the epistles are the next healthiest p- place to be. And um, so you, you would enjoy James because of how practical it is. And then also, 
you know, Paul's prison epistles would be just, because every one of the epistles, basically, well, Paul's epistles, the first couple chapters are um, the doctrine and the reason how the gospel connects to everything, and then the last few chapters are all practically how you live it out. That's exactly what you want a foundation in the gospel, and then you talk about the good morals and the things that you should do out of a response to the gospel. So. Yeah. I once heard someone say that First Peter had everything that was needed for a new believer. Sorry. And I, and I went and read it, too, and I thought, no, that's okay. And uh, I'm just adding to your awesome yeah. answer. Uh, I went and read it, and I thought, ah, oh, they're right. So, yeah, that would be another, another place. And Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, yeah. Also very cool. All the minor prophets just hang out there. Um, yeah, so that went way faster than I thought. Do you know what that means? <laughs> Do you guys want 10 minutes on the Apocrypha? That wasn't enthusiastic enough. Ask him again. That was a that corner wants ten minutes on the apocrypha. Yeah. Or do you want session four, which is This is session four. Session five. That's later. That's later. Okay. Sounds like you want to give us the apocrypha. No. All right. Or you can go to session five. That's your yeah. Andy's making the choice as you watch. Hey, you're literally watching. You can shut this mic off. All right, this was one of the questions. So consider this the Q&A. It's just the best answer in the Q&A because there's slides, right? So the Apocrypha is a set of books in the Roman Catholic Bible that they really have elevated to a place of authority, but Protestants don't believe that way. And so this is a Roman Catholic and a Greek Orthodox thing. And, and the, the titles are on the screen there. Some of, these, some of these books you may have never heard of, Bell and the Dragon. It sounds like a Disney movie. And so you're like, what in the world is going on here? The Greek Orthodox has all of those plus these additional books. Originally, the Apocrypha, well, in the Roman Catholic Bible, it's, it's spread out in the Old Testament all over the place. And so they'll append it to other books and intersperse it. So it really seems like it's a part of the scriptures. They call these books deuterocanonical, so like secondly canonical. So they're not the same as the scriptures, but they really do believe that they're, they're powerful and authoritative. These were books written during the silent years, so be between Malachi and, you know, John the Baptist. So you can imagine there's all these silent years and people want to hear from God and 400 years of silence in preparation for the Messiah coming. And so they, they want something. So books are being read. But are they scripture? Well, they're in, they're in a lot of Bibles, but they're Roman Catholic and Greek Orthodox Bibles. Here's what the Catholic Church says about it. If anyone should not accept these books as sacred and canonical, part of the Bible, entire with all their parts, and if both knowingly and deliberately he should condemn the tradition, let him be anathema. That means let him be damned. So they feel really strong about this. They're like, you will not make fun of our Apocrypha, right? And so this is a strong thing, but why aren't they scripture according to Protestants? Well, first of all, the Jews who authored the books never claimed that this was scripture. They never claimed it. So their own authors never did this. That's a pretty weighty argument to say that the authors of these books didn't recognize them as scripture. They knew they were different from the 39 books in the Old Testament. Well, there was less in the Hebrew. That's a different question, but the same exact content in our Old Testament as in the Hebrew Bible. It's just they combined that we separated a bunch of their books into separate books to make it easier to read. But so why aren't they scriptural? There's factual errors in, in this, right? We would say theological errors based on what the rest of the Bible teaches that it's not in harmony with. And so we're going to cover, cover a couple of those errors. First of all, it condones magic. So it says, then the angel said to him, this is in Tobit 6, 
take out the guts of the fish and lay up his heart and his gall and his liver for thee, for these are necessary for useful medicines. And when he had done so, they roasted the flesh and he goes to a bunch of places. And he says, tell me to the angel, what are the remedies that these things are good for? Why did you tell me to keep the fish? And the angel said, if you put a little piece of its heart on coals, the smoke will drive away all kinds of demons. So if you ask yourself, is that true? Is it true that the, the main solution we need for demons isn't prayer and fasting, isn't like having a regenerated heart, isn't any of that, but if you just happen to have a fish heart and you burn it, demons are like, I'm out of here. You know, forget about the name of Jesus, but this fish heart smoke is really messing with me. It just sounds like stuff you find outside of the Bible, not in the Bible. Salvation by works is shown in here in Tobit for alms or giving of money delivers all from sin and from death and will not suffer the soul to go into darkness. So that's obviously uh, a big issue when it came to the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Reformation, and they would look to a passage like this. Money will help the dead. So we know in, in the book, in Hebrews, it says that it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. In 2 Maccabees, it says, and making a gathering, gathering he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. So somehow after somebody has lived a life and died, if you happen to have relatives that have money and make an offering, it will affect your afterlife. That just doesn't find its way anywhere else in Scripture. Along with historical errors, um, they basically said Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Assyrians. Even though there's, the, the difference in spelling isn't a big deal. That happens regionally. The issue is that, he was, that there's never been a king called Nebuchadnezzar of the Assyrians. That's just a mistake. Kind of a blatant mistake, too. They needed a copywriter. Um, so why aren't they scripture? Well, the Roman Catholic Church itself didn't recognize these as canonical until 1546 at the Council of Trent. And this was in reaction to the Protestant Reformation. They're like, man, we need to like, we're losing people here. We're losing people, and they're forming this own denomination. And so they, they said, all right, this will make us different. We embrace the Apocrypha. And they're saying that it doesn't have a, the same place as the scriptures. Jesus and the apostles um, cite the Old Testament about 300 times in the, in the New Testament. There's allusions to the Old Testament that aren't exact citations. The Apocrypha is never quoted in the New Testament. It's debatable that I think there's one allusion to it. Like maybe in this one spot, they're referencing the Apocrypha. That's a noticeable difference that it would be uh, left out in the quotes of Jesus. Jerome, an early church father, um, claimed the books of the Apocrypha were edifying for Christians, but were not for the establishing of the authority of the doctrines of the church. That's a good way to, to look at it. And so what do you do with them? Well, they are still more valuable than we probably give them credit for when you look at church history. Even Luther, in, in one of his editions of the, of the Bible, he took them out from being attached through all, all over the Old Testament, and he put them in a separate location in, in the Bible so that people could treat them separately than the holy, inerrant scriptures. But even Luther and Calvin and them, they would read the Apocrypha, and they would see the errors and say, yeah, well, there's errors in the newspaper sometimes, too. Um, so some of these books are helpful as if you were reading a devotional or listening to a sermon, but you would never say that those things are inerrant, right? Now, the most helpful books are First and Second Maccabees, where you learn about Hanukkah, 
which is mentioned in the Bible. Jesus celebrated the Feast of Lights. And so basically all the core stuff we know about Hanukkah is found in First and Second Maccabees. And that gives you some great history about a, a Jewish rebellion that happened during those silent years. And so John 10, 22 to 24 references the you know, Hanukkah in there. So I would say if you've never read through the entire Bible, then don't read the Apocrypha until you've read through the entire Bible because let's have our priorities set. And then if you have a healthy Bible reading habit, then read some of the interesting historical books. Read them as, wow, this was 2,500 years old. This is really cool. This is something that people would have been aware of in that time. And just recognize some parts are edifying, some are full-on mistakes, and you just read it. You read it like that. So that would be, that would be my answer. What did he say? Luther said, these, are, these books are not considered equal to the Holy Scriptures, but at the same time, they are profitable to read. So...